at the court of Queen Elizabeth I. All, all her courtiers or advisors were all Rosicrucians. It was the first openly Rosicrucian court. And, uh, and from then on, it was definitely uh, Rosicrucian. Then it blossomed into different branches of masonry and so on. And the masonry was heavily involved in all the revolutions, uh, not just the American Revolution, but the, the French as well, and the Russian Revolution, Soviet Revolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trotsky even wrote about it in his own book, My Life. He joined them too, uh, because of its revolutionary character. So, so there were there was definitely, um, in as far back as the French Revolution, they were having uh, Masonic meetings and what they called coffee houses, uh, Masonic clubs. So uh, that was to foment, get members in, with a certain indoctrination. A lot of idealists went in as well, thinking that they would bring a better world out of it. I'm sure, but above them, at much higher levels. Uh, we see it manifested in the the Bolshevik system, really, where you, you have a totalitarian regime in charge uh, running a country, an entire nation, and yet training the people at the bottom that it was all for the common good. And people at the bottom thought they were all working towards the common good, but the ones at the top uh, were living very high on the hog. They had a different um, interpretation of communism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, at H.G. Wells, uh, George Orwell said, "Some are more equal than others in such utopias." Well, I, indeed they are, and indeed they still are in the minds of those who uh, seek to control. The man, George Orwell, died. He died very young, forty in his forties, I believe, of mm-hmm. uh, I think tuberculosis or something like it. Yeah. H- had he lived, uh, he would have continued, obviously, producing. I'm sure any more books of uh, extraordinary foresight or was it foresight he, he is said to have been on the inside as well and, yeah he, he, he admitted uh, that he knew were, were in the works he admitted he came from a long line of uh, bureaucrats his father uh, worked his whole life for the British government as a foreign uh, affairs uh, uh, d- department man he was in charge of the British opium company there was a private company owned by royalty <laughs> but they used the British funding and taxpayer and, and troops to to police it in Burma so uh, he was brought into the same sort of uh, uh, line in his father as they always, they're, they're generally hereditary in these positions oh. and he was trained at Cambridge for his role in this upcoming world order and he was, was um, trained to be a revolutionary he did go to the Spanish Civil War and when he was there, he realized that to know that the communists were not the working man's friends, uh, there was another player above this controlling all of them. And that's when he came back and tried to tell all the socialists that they'd all been had. There was a, a puppeteer controlling all sides here. And then he wrote his, uh, his, ni- his 1984 Nano Farm and other books. And he had a hard time getting those published, in fact, even though he had contracts with about five major publishers because he was exposing the technique of what was really to come. Uh, he had to go privately to get them published. He's a remarkable man, and there were, there were several. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, unfortunately, the younger generation now uh, knows nothing about. No. In fact, many of them don't even know their name. Mm-hmm. And all this is, is getting up to the point that we're going to be discussing this incredible ignorance of an entire society and its inability and disinterest in studying its past at all uh, is so pervasive now. And it, it's not, 
does not happen by accident. No. We'll be right back with uh, Mr. Alan Watt in just a couple minutes. Talking with Alan Watt during the second half of the program tonight. Did you happen, Alan, to run across the publication in 1994 of that lost Jules Verne prophetic novel that lay was hidden in a sealed safe for 131 years? Did you ever hear that story? I've heard the story. Um, the problem is I've also heard other ones after the fact uh, that uh, down through history they do this sort of thing quite often yeah and it's a form of generally predictive programming um, prophecy is a great way of making believe, people believe that fate is somehow fixed and even with religion they generally have in the end of religious books uh, a revelations type scenario where you can't change anything it's God's will or it's fixed in the oh. stars or and and what it does 22 yeah yeah and we we know for instance that the British MI5 and 6 were famous for using this kind of stuff they used it against Hitler uh, the the they flew um, their own versions of Nostradamus's prophecy over Poland and dumped thousands of leaflets all over the place to try and convince the public that uh, the propaganda that the Germans had already flown over with their version of Nostradamus was false. So they played this game of, of espionage and counter-espionage, uh, and they reinterpret uh, things all the time to make people think, well, there's nothing you can do. It's fate. It's fixed. It's the stars. It's God or whatever. You know? And after a while, people stop thinking, and then they begin to react which is our big problem today, and it's not a problem for the controllers. That's what they want. Let me just do this for our listeners very quickly. And is it, is it, is it precognition at some level? Uh, is it, what did you call it, programmed predictability? Predictive Predict programming, yeah. Predictive programming, interesting. This is a, a little story that uh, I, I found some years ago. Uh, it's a Dateline Paris. Uh, Horse-drawn carriages clattered on the streets outside of Jules Verne's Paris apartment, but it was quiet inside. There was no telephone, no phonograph, and no radio. They had yet to be invented. The year was 1863. Soldiers armed with muskets were fighting the American Civil War across the Atlantic. Workers were digging London's first subway line. And in Paris, the man who had become the best-selling French author of all time taking readers on extraordinary voyages in 20,000 leagues under the sea and around the world in 80 days was imagining a bleak future. The only thing Verne could not have predicted was that a book he had written, rejected by his publisher, would wait 131 years until 1994 to be published. Verne was 35 with one highly acclaimed book to his credit at that time when he began writing Paris in the 20th century by hand in a small and delicate cursive. The typewriter 
wouldn't be invented for another ten years at least. His pages were illuminated by a small gas lamp. Electric lights were at least 15 years away. The book's protagonist, Michel Dufresnoy, lived in a nearly uh, century in the future, in the year 1960. Technology and automation had supplanted the culture of the 1800s. So here he is anticipating technology and automation. Elevators in his novel whisked people up and down buildings. Trains took them back and forth from the suburbs. Images, he called them FAC, fact, similes, could be sent thousands of miles away by photographic telegraph, something we today call a fax machine. Neon lights, unknown in 1863 at all, illuminated Jules Verne's avenues of a hundred years in the future. Concerts were performed in a 10,000-seat auditorium by single artists using electronic amplifiers. And of the, quote, innumerable cars that passed on the paved roads, most moved without horses, end quote, he wrote, 25 years before the first prototype of an automobile was even conceived. They are, he said, propelled by an invisible force, the force of 20 or 30 horses, by means of a motor run by gas combustion. And he goes on in the end to say, in one other paragraph here, how things had changed in a hundred years, and for the worse. He said, a, all right, in Verne's vision, marriage has become, quote, a useless, almost heroic act. And children born out of wedlock far outnumber those born to married couples. Even the Parisian woman has been transformed. Verne wrote, she is a butterfly who has returned to being a caterpillar. Her caressing way of walking, her grace, her amiable smile, her slight plumpness have all been replaced. She has become an American. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. very interesting. It's interesting, uh, although I have to authenticate it. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a solid news story, and the book was published in 1994. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not impossible. Uh, a lot of the stuff, actually, I mean, they had submarines in the American Civil War, you know. And he had he had a, a leaning, but uh, it was a very dark, his publisher was enraged that uh, he even submitted it. He said, how, how can you do that? You're going to ruin yourself. So I, I don't see I don't see any publisher turning anything he had down at all, to be honest with you. That's what they say. Uh, they're yeah. from the publisher here. And yeah. His family found it. They finally used it, uh, apparently, in a settling torch uh, to open the, uh, open the safe. I could send you the news story. It's interesting. Yeah. I kept it. Yeah. Found it in 1994 and kept it uh, how many of these years now? All right. Where, where we are now, Alan Watt, is in a, in a culture, in a society that is not proactive. It is reactive. From the very first moment our young children, and some at the age of even weeks, I guess, are put in front of a television set, allowed to at least hear it, see the flicker, and they begin to, by that flicker, of course, be put into a an altered state, mm-hmm. and the, the messages begin to pour into their subconscious, auditory, and certainly visual, 
And by the time they're three, four, five, they are completely trained robots, uh, demanding and reacting to their, their surrounding stimuli and demanding of their parents uh, of things. Uh, it goes on from there. We are yep. a reactive society, a conditioned, programmed, reactive society. And that's, that was the plan. It was a plan. I mean, guys like Bertrand Russell, who was in on the, the plan, he was an, an aristocrat. He drafted up different ideas and think tanks, worked on them to bring them into to actual working order and practice. Uh, he said back in the 50s that they would be bringing in the big marketing advertising companies who understood human nature uh, and that they would use this along with this great plan because it was a plan for a new system, a new world order to indoctrinate uh, the children especially and, and adults too. He said, he said the lifelong education, what he meant was you'd be constantly upgraded uh, as we now upgrade computers uh, with new ideas that you'll think are your own, but they're actually being marketed right into your, into your mind. Yeah. That's, that's the, uh, the clever, insidious part of it. They have people actually thinking that they are thinking. Yes. Well, Brzezinski, who, again, is a big player, as we know. The big. Yeah, he's a big player. And uh, he wrote Between Two Ages in that book. And in there he tells you that apart from the fact in the technotronic era that you, your mind will be controlled and you won't even know it. Only the controllers will know. He said, he said that um, uh, the same sort of thing. He said uh, uh, eventually the people will depend upon the media to do their reasoning and their thinking for them. And therefore, their conversations could only uh, take place the following day, where they'll repeat the, the previous day's stories, and that's happened. Oh, it's absolutely yeah. uh, the way it is now. Now, Zbigniew Brzezinski, in that book, kind of gave it away. And, and what do we have today? Uh, Brzezinski and his sons and one daughter, I think at least, the Brzezinski clan, along with George Soros, are running and managing the uh, utterly concocted, created, crafted. Obama campaign. Yes. Yeah. And again, it doesn't really matter about the campaigns because Carl Quigley, who was an advisor to the diplomatic corps of the U.S. State Department, uh, a professor who picked Rhodes Scholars like Bill Clinton to be a Rhodes Scholar, he said in his own book, um, The Anglo-American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope, uh, that it doesn't matter what the public are presented with, if it's the left or the right or this guy or that guy. He said they all belong to us. And he meant the Council on Foreign Relations, the big institution that has thousands and thousands of members from the press all the way through control, social control. He said we always make sure that the, the, the people at the top including the advisors of both sides are ours. The other politicians, the lower politicians, are allowed certain competition between each other, but they said we always have our own people at the top. And they said this is a parallel government that's been in progress for the last 60 years, and he was writing that in the, in the 1960s. So, you see, there's a parallel government, and that's what Margaret Thatcher mentioned, too, when she gave her world tour, and the, the, the title of her tour was The New World Order. And she spoke in Massey Hall in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And she said that we, ex-prime ministers and presidents worldwide, 
have formed, she said, a parallel government because democracy for the people is too slow. We cannot get our agenda through. So we plan, we do, we're not responsible to the government, to, to the government or the people. And therefore we get much more done, much quietly and, and easily. So that's how it works. Yeah. Well, this uh, Bertrand Russell talking about uh, media ad agencies running the show by the 1950s, he, of course, was well aware of the work of uh, Edward Bernays, yeah. uh, who began his his journey, so to speak, as mm-hmm. a nephew of Sigmund Freud in uh, the 1920s. Yes. Found how, how malleable people were. And, and they already knew. They already yeah, knew. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, back in just a couple minutes with Alan Watts as we continue. Radio Network, home to hard-hitting talk radio. Okay, Jeff Rentz, back with you. Thanks for being here tonight. We have a weekend on store, on tap for us, in store for us tomorrow and Sunday. Hope you have a good one. We'll be with you, of course, at Rents.com. And I would urge all of you who can afford it, $5 a month, subscribe to the program because you can download thousands and thousands of programs and take them with you on your, your iPod or whatever. And we have, uh, we're adding archives all the time, and we're working all the way back to 1994, and I, I think you'll never find a more interesting compilation of, uh, of personalities and news. It's kind of a chronicle of, of what's happened to us, and it, it really started to, to accelerate in, in the uh, early mid-90s. So, uh, interesting thing. Alan Watt is with us, and we're talking about control, and so much more than that. You know, people, Alan, talk about reversing it, taking mm-hmm. the country back. Yeah. I, I don't mean to sound negative, but how does forget about it work for you? You can't get anything back, especially if it wasn't used in the first place. That's exactly what I was getting. Mm-hmm. What we've had is, is a, a long reign of management, we've been managed, uh, the culture is a culture industry it actually creates the culture updates the culture and shapes the culture towards the next move the next step of acceptance and that's not a secret uh, even the FBI the CIA have declassified documents uh, stating quite clearly that they, they ran the culture industry uh, from the World War II onwards basically the CIA uh, William Colby, the CIA and former director. I just wanted to mention one thing. Colby said that uh, he was murdered. Of course, said that we we uh, 
We control every major news outlet in America. It wasn't just the news. This is just the the declassified information now uh, that uh, the OSS, which was the combination really of the British Secret Service at that time that became MI6, and uh, that department in the U.S. that became the CIA, uh, ran uh, not only the American uh, culture industry, but the British, the French and all the other European countries that were not under the Soviet Union. Uh, That also included the music industry, artists, they funded artists, the major authors that we're all familiar with, all worked for them, and have disclosed this in uh, declassified reports. uh, Everything we took for granted, in fact. (laughs) It's a level of control that is is again so far beyond the ability of most people to understand that it, it almost defies adequate description. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to do. It is so complete. Uh, certainly run at the top level by uh, the best analysts, social engineers, mm-hmm. going back to Tavistock if you want, moving fast forward to the age of supercomputers where they're able to program in literally real-time data and run real-time scenarios and come out with a, you know, plus or minus two or three percent response to anything that they inject into the social membrane and societal fact fabric. It's, it's all being done almost in a virtual sense before they plug it in. They know the risks. They, they, know, they know the risks. They, they debate every part of the strategy uh, with meeting and committee after committee with specialized think tanks each one dealing with specific areas, and they even foresee what kind of uh, retaliation there will be or stubbornness within the populations, and they find ways to overcome that. Always. They they plan for the backlash. They come out with... They're three, four steps ahead all the time. Yeah, we're on a chessboard, and most folk don't know there's even a game going on. Well, that that sums it up perfectly. Uh, Television. Give us your view of of television and how powerful it is. It is the major tool. Uh, Radio was very effective, especially from from Britain with the BBC. They came out as a propaganda tool in World War I. And uh, it was very effective. They became masters at just, just the auditory part of it. And mixing fact with fiction and dramas and plays, they change the behavior of people, and that's behavior modification. You can change the environment if you want people to change, and so they gave you radio in your environment, and you now come home at a certain time to hear your favorite show, so your behavior has changed, and you'll tune in to hear the next part of the serial drama which always has a human suspense element or detective part in it. Uh, but you don't realize you're getting fed propaganda and new ideas that haven't come along yet, but it's familiarizing you with what's to come. Uh, so your subconscious takes that in, and then when it happens in re- real life, you, you've not actually thought about it consciously, but it's familiar, so you accept it. And that's what, a, good, a good example of that was the whole Star Trek series. It, it really, it wasn't just the Starship Enterprise and the, the, the Galactic Federation. It was a symbol of the United Nations and free trade. It was all about free trading. And those who wouldn't join the Federation and free trade were always the bad guys. Always. Always evil-looking characters. And, and of course, that multiculturalism in there. It had uh, multi-faith, had everything wrapped in, and the New Age religion as well. And so everything was 
pre, it was pro, very good too. It was very enjoyable because they made the, the, the characters very human, and uh, and we, we uh, being human ourselves, we're fascinated by other humans. We identify with the heroes, but we don't realize we're being fed uh, propaganda and predictive programming for what's to come in real life. When people began to get you said something that's very important hasn't been talked about too much serials serialization of a, uh, of a book uh, a weekly series where there's an ongoing uh, multiple threads of characters and situations it's, that, what happened in the last century I think was underlying all of it was an addictive paradigm catering to addictive personalities, creating addictive personalities, uh, permitting, encouraging excesses and self-indulgences now which are absolutely without restraint. But the whole idea of habituation and addiction, I think, became uh, one, of the, one of the key underlying motive forces of all of these changes we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, the TV literally changed the world. And part of it was to create a common culture. There were meetings with the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations in England in the 60s, where they debated uh, which country would have the lead in creating the world culture, mainly through television. And they decided that, that the United States would be given the role to lead the world by creating this culture through music and, and, uh, and the visual arts. And, of course, Hollywood, one of the biggest exports of the United States, is movies. So it's been very, very successful in that. And they decided, too, in this system, this Royal Institute of International Affairs, that this, they had to bring a world system in with no competition. No other culture would be allowed in it. And uh, that's why they're basically finishing off the last cultures that are different and not uh, democratic, as they call it, even though the, the democracy part's a joke. Joke. Was it uh, a surprise to you how easy it was for the controllers to steamroll Europe into the EU? It, I figured that there would be more resistance. Well, it was it was they declassified the initial plans in about ninety nine, and in those plans, uh, now this was drafted up in World War Two. The first bureaucracies international for Europe were put into motion in 1948. And it states right there that the public must not be allowed to know um, what's actually the, 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 the agenda, that it is a unified Europe, until it is completed and over. So by complete deception and lies, uh, they brought it about. Now, I grew up seeing it and, and noticing it and knowing where we were going we went metric a long time ago um, we had the decimalization of currency that came in at the same time uh, we had a value added tax which the rest of Europe got as well and it was quite easy to see we were actually emerging and no more income tax you have value added tax over there you have well value added tax is, in, is on top of everything you purchase yes and uh, is, there, is there a personal income tax as well oh yeah Oh, so they've got you both ways over there. Yeah, you pay for everything. You pay, pay, pay from uh, for everything, and uh, and now they're deregulating all of the governmental institutions that were initially set up by using your tax money 
to to give something back to the people, big institutes, hospitals, and so on. Now they're privatizing them and trimming them all down. And they handed over all of these institutions, the the roadworks, um, the, the natural gas systems, everything the public paid for transportation. They handed it over to these private companies, and well, really for peanuts, they gave them peanuts. They you know, paid them peanuts for it. So the public were completely ripped off, and now everything's uh, gone sky high with with the prices so that's coming here too it's the same system same agenda uh, same sort of time scale but they're using terrorism to to integrate even faster yeah alleged terrorism yeah state sponsored terrorism Mm -hmm. Uh, okay talking with Alan Watt and we'll be back continue our conversation in just a couple Back, talking about Alan Watt, the, uh, the absurdly morbid American political process and the, uh, these alleged candidates that are running for the alleged highest office in the land, which of course it's not, uh, must be particularly disgusting to a man of your intellect and your vision. Uh, it's, it's so sad to see uh, so many people voting in these primary elections for people who are, are nothing more than servants of various vested special inster, instruments uh, known as gangsters. Uh, that's all they are. Yeah. All you have to do is look around at Bush's now. The, the Bush-Cheney Zion lit the fuse which has ignited this fiscal financial catastrophe we are suffering in now. That's the direct, uh, the direct tracing of it right to there. Yes. The, uh, these guys are puppets indeed. However, this agenda, as I say, was, was drafted up long before they came on the scene, and every president in turn has, has played his part in it. Uh, the advisors know more than the presidents do. Uh, these advisors are globalists. Uh, they generally all belong to either the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations, sometimes both. They know the world agenda, and uh, nothing, believe you me, no one person can stop this. No, not one single individual on his own can stop this because they would never be allowed. They'd be candidates so quickly if they actually tried to do something because this has been the plan in the works for such a long time. You have an industry now, an industry and, uh, and masses of bureaucracies now depending on terrorism. It's all they have. It's the biggest growth industry in the world right now. And uh, the world they're bringing in, we must remember Rumsfeld's words when he said this will be a hundred years war. This isn't a war just against the Middle East. It's a war to bring in Huxley's brave new world with purpose-made people that are very obedient and a much smaller population to serve uh, the dominant minority, the ones who believe they have the superior genes and we at the bottom all have the junk genes and therefore we are expendable. Uh, it's a whole war to bring out the brave new world at the end of it. Yeah. Nothing, nothing brave about it. it. To them it is, breaking the cycle of nature. Uh, again, it's an old term used by the ancient Greeks, brave new world. Breaking the cycle of nature. How about destroying nature? Yeah, these guys are so far into themselves and their godhoods, and of course they're psychopaths too, which is also hereditary when it's inbred so so well amongst them. Um, They believe that they can, uh, through understanding of all sciences, they used to couch it hundreds of years ago, by understanding nature we can rebuild all that was left and perfect. Well, 
by that they mean that by understanding the sciences and how nature operates they can become as gods and literally recreate anything in a better way and that this has always been their boast yeah. unfortunately their greed and inbred mediocrity has lost them the vision of keeping the golden goose alive mm-hmm. what is it in your, this has bothered me for many years Alan what is it in your opinion these people are thinking about or not thinking about with respect to destroying deconstructing absolutely devastating the environmental ecosphere upon which we live what mm-hmm. is what is what do they know something is coming and that it doesn't matter if they continue to rape the planet because it's all going into the toilet soon enough mm-hmm. what is the deal you know, they, they do sense. they do believe that through sciences they can fix any damage they do and well, that's the ultimate mm-hmm. arrogance if I've ever heard it because I don't yeah. believe that but, uh, and also NASA NASA put out a two-hour documentary special uh, with David Suzuki narrating it uh, a few years ago and it was about going off the next big adventure will be to go off to mine the other planets so they're already working out their next uh, the next few centuries and what they plan to do now these guys at the top are not the brightest however they have psychopathic traits they're incredibly cunning uh, they're so streetwise they, they could con anyone and they catch on to a con immediately but they hire the brightest minds in the system that they have given us uh, to work for them. Yeah. Money means nothing to them, and, and everyone's got a price, pretty much. Yes, especially when, when literally these characters live pretty well um, on the public purse, you know. Uh, Plato said it himself, the, uh, the, the utopia, the, the new republic, as he called his utopia, which these guys all read, and they quote Plato all the time. He said that why should we pay for our homes and our mansions while, while we rule the people and things are stolen from us we have to replace, we have to pay for servants we have to pay for repairs we should simply have the public pay it for us and technically we will own nothing well that's how these people live the, the money con is what they gave to us to get us to work for them because then they can take it back and through taxes etc there is really Again, and I said this earlier, no way to take back what we never had. Uh, the, we had an illusion, mm-hmm. is what we had. And whatever reality there was to it uh, vaporized a long time ago. You can go back to the Federal Reserve Act, uh, so, so many key turning points in the history of this country. Uh, you're originally from where, Alan? Scotland. Okay, well, uh, what's going on in the UK now literally seems to be the, the frontline experimentation of how much the public will tolerate. Yes. From speed cams to uh, cams that uh, listen to people in the streets and speak back to them mm-hmm. to, uh, well, I don't know what they call them, we call them dumpster police, trash can police over there, which now have the ability to stop mm-hmm. motor vehicles at any time they'd like, uh, search the entire car, and if they find a trash bag in the trunk, for example, to literally find and impound the vehicle of the people. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is... And take your DNA on the spot. Exactly right. Uh, it's, it's beyond belief. Back in just a few minutes with the brilliant Alan Watts.
Alan. Alan's a, a remarkable guy, uh, tr truly a great thinker. He is a long-term researcher into the causative forces behind major changes in historical development. His background is that of a Renaissance man, so to speak, with a uh, certain depth in three professions, plus having various books published in religious, philosophy, poetry, mainly under uh, pseudonyms, but uh, he's uh, a remarkable Scotsman. He's with us tonight. And are you living in the States here or in Canada? In Canada. Smart. Although they do have those so-called anti-hate laws up there. Well, well, the thing is, I don't know if you... Two years ago, I think, in the newspapers, maybe one year ago, in fact, there was an article in their major papers here saying, uh, calling uh, North America Fortress America. And it was after that one of their annual signatories with the president and prime ministers of Mexico and Canada all signed the further integration into the unification of the Americas. And it said because of terrorism, we have to basically start amalgamating different uh, sections of the bureaucracies and police and military. And right. technically, um, the CSIS, which is our Canadian secret intelligence service, is now totally merged with the CIA and FBI. Um, we use... A woman on last night from the Mohawk Nation, uh -huh. and they caught uh, American ATF agents uh, up there in a border patrol car uh, with a Canadian law enforcement officer. So they're going back and forth across the borders all the time. They are. And now they've just announced they've integrated the, the military as well. The Canadian and the U.S. military and uh, Canadian troops can now come down to the U.S. for terrorism or disasters and vice versa. Well, I don't know where it's going to go except uh, onward into the same horrible milieu that the controllers have designed for us because the average American young person now is, is dumber than dumb. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not being mean. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And the, the obvious reason is uh, is this mass pop culture media they live in they don't they literally don't have a chance and how do you awaken someone when there's nothing to wake up I mean, yeah well they're also the they're also a generation that, that have had more inoculations than all the previous generations combined when they're so young right. do you know how many vaccines are now recommended by the United States government for infants up to the age of uh, and adults to the age of 60. Over 150. Yeah. yeah. And there's no end in sight. There's no end. And their, their immune system, in fact, everyone from 1950s onwards has a depleted immune system because they're attacking your immune system before it's even developed. Correct. And therefore, you have to question the whole... Bertrand Russell, again, the big, one of the big players, talked about the Soviet system knowing darn well that it was to be the same system worldwide. The Soviet system was a big experiment where they did studies with a closed environment. And he said, with the use of scientific indoctrination and the needle, you'll make a very complacent society. And now we should take these words to heart because these characters don't say anything without real purpose behind it. And I think they really have been doing this uh, on purpose, especially since, uh, since the beginning of the Cold War. 
they, they were more terrified of the public within the nations of the West uh, demanding more socialist policies as they pointed to Russia and what they were given to the people and, and therefore they realized their main enemy was not the Soviets, it was the internal populations. Uh, uh. Yeah. There are so many things going on. The uh, government, by the way, is beginning now, well, they were forced to eventually, and they are just beginning now to admit that there is a, a link between autism and vaccines. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is a no-brainer, of course. Yeah. But when you give children who are literally hours old injections, yeah. hepatitis B, things like that, mm-hmm. you are, you're destroying them. Uh, the autism rate now in certain areas of the United States, I've forgotten where, mm-hmm. is one in 66 males. Yes. One out of 66. Mm-hmm. This is all ma- human cause, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. The controllers are destroying. It's, it's, it's a slow burn genocide is what it is. If 30 years ago, it was a one in 10,000. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, when, you, when you see the charts, in fact, I've done tests in some of the U.S. states with the charts of the countries having inoculations, uh, the recent ones, uh, in those particular states, and the ones that come down with autism, it goes up exponentially. So it's, it's completely related. And I have come to the conclusion that the shots they give us have probably nothing to do with what's written on the vial. Uh, and if you read the listed in the acknowledged ingredients, and God knows what is really in some of these things, you see things like MSG, mm-hmm. aspartame, yep. not to mention thimerosal, and all these other things. I mean, it, it, nothing could be more uh, heinous, uh, disgusting, vile to do to a young child who has no immune system at all than to start to dose their body with these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's beyond criminal. I I, uh, I don't see a way to rehabilitate this, this situation. Uh, it seems no. like it has to go all the way down and out the other side, and then we reconstitute it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see uh, World War III uh, coming? Uh, this is World War Three. All right. This is World War... Mm-hmm. This would be a more explosive version of World War Three. I agree with you. Yeah, oh, the explosive version will be within the, the nations and the Department of Defense... Uh, put out a document, a nine-page document, a ninety-page document. I have it on my website, and I read of it. And nine pages of it were published in the Guardian newspaper in Britain. And this is from the top think tank for the Department of Defense. That's also the top think tank for the NATO countries, including the U.S. And all they foresee for the next thirty years is nothing but mayhem, uprisings, and and uh, street violence from the people themselves, massive demonstrations, violent demonstrations, uh, for 30 years. And they're prepared, and in this Department of Defense statement, they're prepared, they're prepared to use neutron bombs on the crowds. I see. Well, they're already coming up with the acoustic denial weapons, so-called denial weapons, which uh, make you feel like you're sitting in a pot of boiling water. Yes. Uh, sound, sonic weapons. Mm-hmm. They're... Uh, I think there's a feature coming up on uh, 60 Minutes Sunday night showing how this works. But yes, they're unrolling uh, some amazing new technology to uh, abuse the public. And this will all be laid at the foot of the word terrorism over and over again. Never mind they've created the terrorism every step of the way, obviously. Yeah, we should go into that after this break because that's important.
Okay, we will. All right, my guest is Alan Watts. Uh, great conversation tonight. And we'll pause and come right back and continue. Back with Alan Watts. Terrorism. Created, managed, manipulated, represented, and promoted by the powers that are supposed to protect us and make the world safe for democracy. All right, Alan. Yes, that's an important uh, topic, really, because when the Department of Defense comes up with this never-ending or 30-year struggle uh, against the people, you have to ask yourself, what's going to happen in society to get Joe and Jane Average off the couch and into the streets uh, demanding something? And what will be is a whole series of things, because, you see, your food... It's going to be used as a weapon against you. Absolutely. And that's been stated already at the United Nations. The Department of Agriculture there said that food has always been used as a weapon, and they will use it. And now we see the reports coming in the paper after the Royal Institute for International Affairs released their big study. They're, they've got massive think tanks working on the next hundred years with food supply. And again, shouting, oh my God, there's not going to be enough and all this kind of stuff. Right. You also have the fact that the UN, uh, under its charter, uh, is supposed to eventually, when it takes over the role of world government, when we're all in our little three blocks, street trading blocks uh, system, the one that Karl Marx mentioned in the 1800s, uh, United Americas, uh, United Europe, and the Pacific Rim conglomerate, he uh, eventually United Nations, is to dole out the food, the world's food, to each region, as they call it. And it's up to the people within that region to keep their population down. Population control is a very big part of this coming agenda. And that's why you're, why you're seeing, you, you know, you have five agri-food businesses that have taken over the world's food supply. Five of them. How easy it is for them to, to switch it off when they, or just turn it off when they don't want you to have food. It's so easy. They, they own the purchasers that supply the stores and the grocery stores and so on. And the water supply is also getting, getting taken over. And the United Nations has stated that, for instance, that farmers, farming is too important to be left to farmers. And that's why they've been at, uh, under war or at war with the farmers of the, especially North America for the last 40, 50 years. And they've almost eliminated, eliminated the smaller family farms. Same in Canada. And now the big agri-food businesses are coming in. So, as Professor Carl Quigley said, this system, this new system we're bringing in, and he was all for the system, he, he said it's a new feudal-type system uh, with the CEOs being the new corporate overlords of the planet. And that's what we're seeing coming into effect as they privatize everything to selected, very selected uh, international corporations. The world of interdependence that you keep hearing about, that Thatcher used often, now it's more common. Um, the word of interdependence means that no individual will have any ability to be independent. So everything you need to live as an individual will have to mean that you must work within the society for the society. And it's a kind of society which they will tell you they're bringing in, not the one that you would choose. Right. Now, independence is uh, not going to be allowed. No. Independence is, is, is absolutely mandatory. And those few who are actually successful in becoming independent will be viewed uh, and kept on uh, a database and watched.
watched carefully. Yeah, they're already using this in China, you see, the term antisocial. That's right. Antisocial. The FBI has now a list of, in this country, uh, not yours, well, what's the difference? But anyway, in the uh, formerly United States of America, over 900,000 people on a terror watch list. Yeah. Nine, let's call it a million. Because it's growing at the rate of twenty thousand a month. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Now these are these are human beings, the vast majority of which are absolutely, I'm sure, without any merit whatsoever to be put on that list. Mm-hmm. No question. Yeah. They're just making work. They're making trouble. They're creating paranoia, mm-hmm. and it's true. The only thing keeping America remotely free is our right to our Second Amendment, mm-hmm. our right to bear arms. America yeah. is armed, and they, they, they don't quite know what to do with that yet. What are your thoughts on, uh, and we have much more to talk about in your next visit, if you'll be kind enough to come back. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're happy to. Uh, thank you. What are your thoughts on, uh, on a pandemic? And I, I've been watching, I don't know if you know, but I've been tracking with the brilliant work of Dr. Henry Nyman, Ph.D., and Patty Doyle, Ph.D., for four years, over four years, the the evolution of H5N1, the birth flu, mm-hmm. which is now very, very close to having all the tools it needs to go actively, easily vectored from person to person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting closer all the time. Uh, do you see a, uh, a world pandemic? I don't know how you could not. but I Oh, yeah, the, the, there's no doubt uh, it's planned that way. Uh, pretty well all major... Uh, diseases we've known for the last 50 years came out of laboratories and uh, uh, again the big players like Bertrand Russell and uh, many others uh, said it's a pity uh, that we don't have another black plague he says to bring the population down we need epidemics and pandemics now pandemics are the perfect way to control populations through massive transitions and because it can spring up and, and wane down for uh, maybe four or five years and then spring up again so it doesn't kill you all off at once they want the dead to bury they want the living to bury the dead you see they want to make money on this whole thing they'll do that too because we are a herd to them in fact in in the health industry now they call us the herd and it's called herd management for for (laughs) pandemics that's official that's official yeah and uh uh, now, Canada, I don't know if you know that Canada is the world's leader in bacterial and warfare, uh, viral warfare. It has been I since... I did not know that. Yeah, Canada has led the world since, uh, since during World War II. And uh, uh, even the great... Again, it's, uh, there's so much deceit because they always put their own historians into right histories. However, um, an, an author from Canada who worked at the Toronto Star put out an excellent book on uh, it's called deadly allies and it's called canada's secret war and has to do with viral and bacterial warfare for, during world war ii and after and uh, they even had such a thing uh, as what we now call the mad cow disease developed this is all declassified documentation from the government mm-hmm. and um they were going to use that on Germany to kill off the food supply because war, total war, you go for everything again that the people need to survive. And um, they wanted to do this. And, and Banting, Professor Banting, the great hero who was given the award actually for 
helping diabetics and really it was the whole the award belonged to someone else but he got the credit because he worked for this establishment in bacterial warfare he wanted to uh, find a way to create a virus that would kill everybody with a, a germanic gene to wipe them all out across the world now we have ethno-specific viruses um a report came out from I think it was a Daily Mail uh, ten years ago with a reporter who was allowed into Port and Downs laboratory, military laboratory in England and he sat with these scientists at breakfast and, and worked with them during the day and at breakfast he says they were casually talking about their work and about all the beautiful ethno-specific viruses they have that could literally wipe out anybody with any particular gene that they, they designed and they wanted to, do, to, to get rid of and the viruses would reproduce so many millions of times sweep across the country and they'd be programmed to annihilate themselves after a, a certain amount of weeks or days uh, that's how efficient this whole thing is now and they can start a virus a new virus to target a particular group and have it finished in an hour one hour one hour this is old stuff and uh, and here they are pretending that we're all to worry about a bird flu when pandemics are released and they will be released it'll be the right time and I know that even the homeland security practices they've had in the states and in Phoenix and other areas last year um, part of it was to do with with containing pandemics now if you go into the NATO agreement the pact for NATO countries including the US and Canada uh, to, to how they deal with either containing a nuclear uh, uh, containment or uh, epidemics is published in Britain it's available to the public um, you have to be quarantined in your town, city or village uh, the military will put rings around there, three rings any individual trying to get out is to be shot on sight um, groups of people trying to burst free out of the area have to be bombed from the air with CS gas and killed um, uh, you're looking at you see uh, containment until you die is their policy that's it no help containment until death yeah uh, your point of course is very well taken I was studying this in the, uh, in the 80s it was, it was old news then they have on the shelves ladies and gentlemen things as Alan said and we've mentioned it before far worse than, than H5N1 this just happens to be the one that's on the on the visible radar right now for us. Uh, they can do anything they want. They are 10, 20, 30 years ahead of us in technology, at least in terms of what we're allowed to know. It's, it's truly staggering, and we'll try uh, in, in the future, as we always do, to keep you uh, updated on all this, try not to get too down, because life can still be beautiful. It's really up to you. You've got to pick and choose your path and follow it very carefully, but there are still ways around the ugly and the evil. Thank you, Alan, for a delightful and uh, very interesting conversation, as always. We'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been a pleasure. Okay, good night. Bye now. Mr. Alan Watt, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're going to get off uh, out of your way here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you at rents.com and be right back with you, of course, on Sunday night and then Monday as well.